So I'm Josh. This is Dharma Punks, New York, and the Tuesday night class. Uh, as always, I feel very grateful for your presence. Uh, just a couple of notes. On October 2nd, we'll have one of our gatherings in central Manhattan near Madison Square Park from 2 to 5 p.m. at Center Yoga, run by our good friends. And if you want, you can even get there early at noon and take the yoga class. Our gathering will start at 2. I hope uh, some of you can show up if you're around that day. It's always lovely to be with friends and um, reconnect with people. For those of you that like to wake up early, daily pause with Kathy and all the information is on the Dharma Punks NYC website where you can start your day off with a meditation. And finally, if you feel so inclined to support the work of a Buddhist pastor who survives entirely by donation only, I don't charge for the teaching or for the Buddhist spiritual counseling slash psychotherapy Everything I do is just supported by the community. And if you'd like to, the PayPal's on the website, also the podcast site. And uh, there's a Patreon. And the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. So, yeah, all the information, including all the talks, you can also hear on Dharma Punks with an XNYC.com. And so tonight, the green monster of envy uh, we're going to be talking about. Start off by contrasting jealousy and envy. So jealousy is fearing the loss of a connection with an attachment figure due to the intervention of a third individual. So jealousy is when we have an attachment to someone and there's a perceived threat that that attachment will be broken by an interloper, by a third party. So individuals can feel jealous of a friend, of a romantic partner. Children can be jealous of their caregivers' attention if they feel someone will take away their caregivers' um, availability. Jealousy is an expression primarily of two forms of insecure attachment. Uh, it can be an expression of anxious attachment based on separation anxiety. Those who experience early emotional abandonments or insecure bonds uh, can develop an inability to uh, accept the prospect of disconnection. Uh, any disconnection can be experienced as unbearable. And so they have heightened threat detection uh, around relationships. And they can at times uh, be unendingly suspicious of uh, other individuals. They can try to make their partners jealous. And they tend to be overly dependent on their primary relationships the type of people who, um, uh, when they wind up in a relationship, lose 
connection with their friends and community. There's another form of jealousy, which is based on toxic narcissism, very uh, primarily gendered towards men who become suspicious and engage in controlling behaviors towards their partners. Uh, they will try to separate their partners from friends. They engage a burst in, of rage and punishing behaviors. It's born of a sense of inadequacy that they project onto their rivals who are seen as possessing some kind of missing ingredient. But I pretty much think that most people have heard of these type of uh, partners who uh, at first love bomb and then separate their partners, uh, undermine their partners, uh, friendships, uh, communities, and so forth. Uh, ultimately, it's a desire for control. And jealousy in and of itself is worthy of a talk, but tonight the topic is envy. Envy is not based on an existent attachment. Primarily, it's based on desiring someone's status, desiring what someone else has, very often someone we don't even know or someone we barely know, fixating on the symbols of their advantages. So why do we have envy? Why do we desire the status, the, uh, the skills, the attributes, and so forth of another? Well, easier to answer, though it requires an in-depth answer than we might expect. Human species de developed in harsh environments with, of course, predators and unpredictable, limited food supplies, rampant diseases. And we survived in small interdependent groups of free-roaming hunter-gatherers uh, sharing resources. So evolutionary psychologists like Norbert Kerr and John Levine and many others note what they call a model of social exclusion. And they propose that social anxiety was the a kind of warning signal to individuals that one was at risk of being excluded, ostracized, or rejected from one's tribe or clan. So it's based on the threat, the perceived threat of social exclusion. Now, in the development of our species, any form of exclusion would be deadly. Uh, human beings would not have in any way survived on their own in the wild. We dependent totally on sharing resources because a lot of days our ancestors would have gone out and not found any food or any tools that would have been helpful. So they relied on group cooperation. And if we were kicked out of the group, well, death would be the inevitable outcome. And that's why over the course of evolution, neural circuits developed to monitor the strength of our bonds with others, especially the strength of our core attachments and the strength of our tribal affiliations, our tribal status. These two twin concerns, how strong are our primary attachments to a specific uh, care, caregiver or romantic partner, as well as our tribal bonds, use 
very similar circuits in the brain. Uh, primarily, we know the dorsal anterior cingulate, the orbital and medial prefrontal, the amygdala, and uh, there's a couple of other regions, but those are the insula. But the dorsal anterior cingulate, the orbital frontal and the amygdala are, you're going to hear those regions mentioned several times again in this talk. They are the hub of social threat detection. To stay, to stay connected, we developed, due to these uh, circuits, one, uh, what we call conscience, guilt uh, capabilities that punish us for antisocial acts, acts that would sabotage our bonds with others. Another attribute the great psychologist Leon Festinger noted was called social exclusion or so, I'm sorry, social comparison. Festinger in 19, I don't know, sometime in the middle 1950s noted an innate impulse to contrast ourselves with others to gain info about our tribal standing. So we look at other people and we see how much they amassed, how many resources, how many, how much food, how many supplies and so forth as a way to monitor uh, the security of our tribal bonds. And we see this today in FOMO, in social anxiety, in virtue signaling, and pretty much all of the forms of uh, innate behaviors that, that are based on monitoring our status with others. Festinger believed that virtually everyone compares themselves with others, mostly upwardly, towards those who are doing better to, than us, those who are amassing more resources or attention. And this was done to motivate ourselves. Uh, less awkwardly, we also uh, compare ourselves downwardly to those who are faring less well in an arena, struggling. Um, and we do that to make ourselves feel better. So we compare ourselves upwards not only to monitor our social standing, but to motivate. And we compare ourselves with those who are doing less well to feel better in life. Festinger noted, and it's been borne out by countless clinical studies since, that very few people engage in what's called lateral comparison, where we look at how well people who are of similar statuses or similar states in life are doing. We, it, it neither motivates nor makes us feel better. And yet at the same time, what's kind of curious is that even though we don't engage in lateral comparison, we do tend to blame laterally. So people who have the same status at their jobs will very often blame each other for stressful work conditions rather than blame their supervisors. It's pretty curious that we don't compare ourselves laterally, but we blame laterally. Uh, I'm sure one day I'll, I'll investigate that further, but it's kind of an interesting note. So there are times before we jump into all the deficits of social comparison, there are times when it works. Uh, some studies show that individuals who don't take care of themselves very well 
who contrast themselves with those who eat healthily and exercise a moderate amount and are in decent shape do take positive acts of self-care. But it's important that they compare themselves with moderate targets, people who are not too uh, unreachably beyond them and physical attributes. So if you go to the gym, don't compare yourself with the physical trainer. I can tell you that as someone who goes to the gym all the time. And when I see them, if I, I just, there's this sense of, ugh, why even bother? So I always, for motivation, compare myself with friends who are going to the gym and working out, but are in no way spending their entire lives working on their bodies. It's a healthy uh, comparison in that it's motivational. Downward comparisons can be useful in, in certain arenas. For instance, romantic relationships, sometimes those who feel uh, disappointed by the stress in relationships, uh, can reflect on those who are struggling to find partners or develop any form of relational bonding. And it's important not to be sanctimonious about it, but studies show that that's a way to uh, develop a sense of renewed interest in working on the relationship. So uh, again, there are some times when social comparison, they're limited uh, times when social comparison works, but very often it's associated with pretty significant psychological hazards. For example, individuals who experienced early attachment wounds and abandonments have a predilection towards core shame, a sense of being innately unlovable. Something about me is not worthy of being cared for being bonded to, and negative social comparisons can easily transmute into damaged sense of self, a global sense of failure. So individuals with anxious attachment or uh, disorganized or who've experienced early abandonments, when they engage in upward comparison, it almost invariably will activate core shame. And that's associated with spikes of addiction and spikes of avoiding social engagement and social anxiety. So again, uh, social comparison uh, is a pretty iffy tendency. Uh, it made sense for our ancestors, because it was far more significant a concern, but today it comes with a lot of um, challenges. Social comparison also shares the same neural circuits in the brain and regions as the as those tendencies that monitor the world for unfairness and also the impulses of aggression. So. I'll say that again, the same, the same circuits that allow us to compare ourselves with others is also monitoring the world for unfairness and also responsible for acts of aggression. So you can see how all these lumping together when we perceive um, uh, 
advantage could then activate um, a negative emotion. So these regions, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, the dorsal anterior cingulate, and the amygdala are, again, not only the hub of social comparison, but the hub of what we would call aggressive impulses and the sense of unfairness. The amygdala is the key here. The amygdala is a very limbic or midbrain um, uh, region that is the center of emotional memory and also determines fight, flight, uh, freeze uh, reactions to stimuli. So it, all the core, uh, especially threatening emotional experiences in life are uh, stem to the activation of the amygdala, as well as our fight or flight impulses. So how does it work? How does MV work specifically? Well, those who struggled to gain attention in childhood from caregivers, perhaps due to sibling rivalry or due to their caregivers getting separated, divorced, and then finding a new partner, or those who experienced early exclusion from peer groups that were especially traumatic, they develop amygdalas with heightened threat detection. And again, the amygdala, which uh, is the threat detector in the brain, depending upon how uh, many adverse childhood experiences we have, can be wired to be overly sensitive to any perceived threats, especially for human beings. That's not only violence, but the threat of being abandoned or separated from the loved or separated from a community. So early childhood uh, attachment wounds or social exclusions lead to amygdalas that are constantly on alert. And when, they, when we witness others getting ahead, especially when their getting ahead is perceived to be linked or at our expense, um, or when we perceive others getting ahead based on unfair advantages, it can stimulate an aggressive sympathetic nervous system reaction in the stemming from the amygdala that says, this is a threat. It's not just unpleasant that somebody is doing better in some area, uh, whether it's envy of their class, their possessions, their popularity, their status, their looks, their physical attributes, their skills, their relational status. It's not just that they're doing better in some area, but that's a threat to me. That is a deep threat to my safety, to my well-being. And once the amygdala determines that something is a threat, it influences many other regions to light up, including um, the striatal region of the brain, which is responsible for repetitive, intrusive thoughts. So we have this midline circuit, the 
the orbital frontal, the dorsal anterior cingulate, but especially the amygdala, which due to early childhood wounds is constantly on the alert for threats. It sees someone who's doing better in some arena. It activates, I'm, this is dangerous to me. That in, in, that then triggers the striatum to just produce repetitive intrusive thoughts. And that is the underpinnings of envy. That's how envy comes about. So it's important for me to differentiate disdain from envy. Disdain is when we have a dismissive response to another person's achievements. We don't believe their achievements are worthy of our consideration versus envy which is fixated and obsessive and desiring what they have. So, for example, I can feel very disdainful of exceedingly uh, wealthy individuals who buy their way to uh, great success or political influence uh, because I don't believe their achievements are worthy. And in so doing, I just don't think about them anymore. I just view that person as not worthy of my attention. So disdain is uh, basically, I'm not going to think about that person. I'm not going to consider them. They do not warrant uh, admiration, nor do they warrant envy. They are simply something not worthy of attention. Envy, on the other hand, we want what they have disdain we don't want what somebody has we view it as um unworthy as envy is born of early abandonments and vulnerabilities when we envy someone we have to devalue them to mask the emotional pain stemming from our original abandonments if we don't devalue them in some way then uh, we will start to feel the emotional pain from the original early attachment wounds. So uh, it's very common to have persistent resentments associated with envy. Uh, the envious recite injustice stories or resentment so we don't have to mourn our early abandonments and rejection. It separates the present sense of unfairness from all of the early most painful events of social exclusion or loss of attachment with a caregiver. Um, in so doing, envy can be very convenient to some in that it deflects anger away from where we might normally direct it. People who don't experience envy who have core abandonments will often experience shame. And so envy at least allows that aggression to flow outwards to another figure rather than to flow inwards towards one's innate sense of self. Um, alas, envy always leads to withdrawal from new relations it engraves feelings of inadequacy, insecurity, and with many, it eventually does wind up with activating core shame. 
So by now, you're probably of the conclusion that envy is not a good thing to mess around with. And that would be a solid uh, decision. However, the bad news is, is though, even though there's many cognitive components and a lot of thinking and resentment involved with envy, the underpinnings are not cognitive, which means there's, there's a kind of automatic nature or innate nature that underpins at times envy. The impulse towards social comparison is not something we can easily remove through willpower. Very few people can say, okay, envy's bad, I'm not going to do it. If that was the case, most of us probably wouldn't because we're probably aware that when we are envious of someone, we have a lot of obsessive thoughts, we don't feel good about ourselves, we don't feel particularly hopeful about our status, we don't feel that we can accomplish much, we have a sense that the whole game is rigged. So nobody likes being envious, or very few people like it, but it's not an easy faucet to turn off once it's, especially once it's open. Um, like all maladaptive coping strategies, envy was motivated by a desire to stay safe by monitoring threats to our tribal status. It's very old. It's ingrained by evolution. So I'm not saying that envy by any means that envy is something that we can't diminish or move to address, but the idea that we're going to alleviate it through willpower, that's not, that's not the way out. So the Buddha and Saka's questions in the bowl of honey sutta directly address, addressed envy. Uh, he said he traced the root of envy to what he calls uh, papancha or ego identification, the incessant need to define ourselves based on ceaseless comparisons with others. He's acknowledging social comparison as an innate human characteristic, a need to, he said, constantly label things, people as mine or not mine. And that, he says, in Papancha gives birth to a thicket, a tangle of thoughts that multiply beyond our control. For him, uh, this tendency to define ourselves in, by contrasting ourselves with others, rather than to build a sense of self through mindfulness, where we just pay attention to what we're feeling and experiencing internally in any given moment lies at the crux of envy. Again, this tendency, we need to develop an identity, a sense of who we are by contrasting ourselves with others, rather than by an inwards contemplation on building identity or sense of self from what do I feel in any given moment of my life? The Buddha, in one of his most wonderful suttas, summed it up. And I'm going to read it because it's I, 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 I can't memorize it, but um, I translated it because I didn't like the other translations from the Pali. It goes a little something like, looking around the world, I saw people floundering 
like fish in shrinking puddles, competing with one another, and that the world was entirely without a safe place. In comparing ourselves in competition with others, people spend their lives racing around frantically, never finding peace. But for those who stop thinking, this is mine, this is me, and know that nothing really belongs to anyone, all things are impermanent, they are released, they experience no grief. So one core Buddhist strategy to addressing envy is Vipassana. It's a practice of observing in meditation the arising and passing of all experience. It starts with just noticing how the breath always changes and that then how feelings are always changing, our just embodied response to stimuli. And then it's by noting how the moods of the mind are constantly changing, whether we're alert or tired, excited, depressed. And finally, noting how our thoughts are always impermanent. And it's through this constant reflection on the impermanence of all states that the idea is that we look around and we see impermanence everywhere. And thus, when we see other people getting ahead uh, or accomplishing, we no longer respond to it as a threat because we know that all advantages are impermanent, that all that even in people who are experiencing tribal advantages, uh, they're that sense of superiority will certainly pass if they have any at all. But another even more core Buddhist strategy to addressing envy is called mudita. Mudita is one of the core heart practices of the Dharma, one of the Brahma-viharas. And in mudita, we cultivate through practice a desire to, to rejoice in other people's earned happiness. And I'll speak to that in a moment. It's the ability to experience the happiness of others and to feel good about it. As we're human beings with mirror neurons, that's actually empathetic identification with other people's uh, happiness is actually something that we can do, especially if we practice it. Um, this attitude um, is born of uh, this recognition that if we can uh, experience the joy of someone else, then our chances for, for happiness go up, what, 7 billion? Are there 7 billion people on the planet? I don't remember. But yeah, if you can feel the joy that someone else is experiencing, you've just multiplied. If you only can feel happy when you're feeling something good has happened to you, <laughs> your chances are pretty dramatically shrunk. If you can feel happy when your partner or when your friends are happy, well, now your chances of happiness have multiplied. But if you can even feel happy when other people you don't know very well have uh 
achieve something um, that is worthwhile, then your ha- your chances of happiness multiply exponentially. It's important to note that the Buddha never suggests celebrating other people's, um, you know, unskillfully earned rewards. We don't celebrate those who were born on, you know, as what's they saying in baseball, those who were born on third base and believe they hit a triple. I don't know baseball, but there's some statement like that. Those who were born extremely wealthy and then believe that their their possessions and their accomplishments were based on their hard work. That's not what we um, develop um, mudita towards. We develop it for people who have achieved happiness through either hard work, volunteerism, spiritual endeavors, simple uh, growing, you know, putting effort in. And if we look around, there are enough examples of that, that we can, even in people sometimes we don't admire, most individuals have in some area of their life found some sense of accomplishment and reward through hard work. So we're not celebrating unskillful um, or unearned rewards, but we are celebrating and learning to identify with the happiness of others rather than to view other people as competitors. And that's the key with Mudita. We're letting go of the idea that we are in constant competition with the rest of the world. So in the, in the Buddhist, fifth century Buddhist teacher, Buddha Gasa, in the famous Buddhist tone called the Path of Purification, uh, we first think of someone that we admire. This would be a spiritual figure. It could be uh, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, um, any figure that we really admire. Um, and we, it could be someone we've known in our life that we admire. And we, we experience a sense of appreciation towards any feelings of happiness or goodwill that they experienced. If it's a friend or someone that you know, really celebrating their the rewards of all their hard work and diligence um, in any area of their life. Again, we're practicing on not viewing people as threats, but as people that we feel emotionally connected to. And then... <clears throat> Buddhaghosa noted that we spread these appreciative um, feelings towards extended friends, then neutral people, and then to people whom we might experience envy or animosity. Now, that doesn't mean we're letting them off the hook. Uh, For a long time, I 
practiced as well as I could, generally with very fleeting positive results. I tried to practice Mudita towards Dick Cheney, who was an abhorrent figure to me back in the 2000, the aughts. I still can't barely stand the sight of the, the man. And there's been countless figures since him that have followed in his wake. I'm sure many of them will immediately come to mind to you. But, um, you know, you don't, we don't have to succeed in it. It's just the trying that counts. Uh, but the idea is to put a chink in the tendency to view other people's um, happiness or success as coming at our expense and the sense that there's a limited amount of happiness to go around in the world. Whew, I think that's all I can say. I'm that, that was, uh, that's enough of my thinking on the subject. And so now what I'm going to do is lead a practice where we're going to do a little bit of relaxation, a little bit of Vipassana and a little bit of Mudita. And, uh, Hopefully somewhere, something in there will, will be worth your, your uh, indulgence. So thanks for listening. And find a really super comfortable position where you can just relax and uh, settle in. Try to look away from the screen. Um, or whatever you're, you've been orienting towards to feel engaged, just put that aside and look uh, in a direction where there's no screen or monitor. And um, closing the eyes and just bringing the awareness into your body from its fixation or its attention to the world around, you were now bringing the attention primarily internally. And to do this, I like to practice finding the most pleasant sensation in the body. It doesn't have to be the breath. It can be anywhere in your body that feels soothing, sometimes I feel it behind the eyes, sometimes I feel it uh, in the palms of my hands. Today I'm actually feeling it a little bit in the heart center. At times, if it's difficult to find any part of your body that feels soothing, uh, you can either, one, put, place a hand on your heart center and let the warmth of the hands activate the vagal nerve there, or put a hand on the back of your neck and just feel the sensation of touch and warmth. And if there's really no area of your body that feels soothing or relaxing, 
Just listen to the sounds surrounding you. And so the practice is just going to be, for a little while, we're just going to practice in silence. And what I'd like you to do is just keep returning your awareness to either a pleasant sensation in your body or to the sounds around you. Whenever you find yourself being snagged by thoughts about the past or anticipations or projections into the future, planning, just feel that's a wonderful opportunity to practice returning to present time sensations. Even if your thought, your mind wanders a hundred times, that's fine. Really the, the most significant part of the meditation is becoming aware that we've been lost in thought and then returning our awareness back. What we're doing is we're developing a metacognitive neural circuit that allows us to be more aware of what our thoughts are doing and what our attention is doing. And that's been shown to be so healthy in terms of healing from wound, emotional wounds and becoming earned secure to feel safer in the world is to have some control over when we get lost in thought, some awareness and some ability to detach from intrusive thoughts. So for now, just practice bringing your thoughts back again and again. And if you'd like, use your exhalation to spread the pleasurable sensation in your body so that more and more of your body feels comfortable.
So for the next uh, part of the practice, just bring your attention to some part of your internal experience that normally might seem constant, maybe the tightness or ease around your abdomen where feelings are often presented, maybe the sensations in parts of your body, your legs or hands or arms. Could be attention to moods of the mind, just observing when you feel a sudden, a shift towards tiredness or alertness, distance from the world or closeness, uh, energy, uh, when the mind feels bright or dark, when the mind feels narrowly fixated or open and spacious, when you're aware of lots of sensations or very few. Or could be just observing any other aspect of your experience from a perspective of noting change. This is the key to Vipassana, which is just without any judgment, without any additional commentary, just observe as parts of our experience, pretty much every part of our experience is constantly changing. It could be finding an area of discomfort, obviously not something that's too painful, but an area that feels discomfort and just bring your attention narrowly to it and observe how the sensations that seemed previously to be pretty static are actually constantly in flux. When we attune the mind to impermanence, there's an ability to detach from fixations, obsessions, that's pretty unparalleled. So let's practice that for a while.
So that was a short glimpse of a practice that can be done for much greater durations. And in early Buddhist teachings, it was believed to be one of the meditations that could lead to awakening. And um, so finally, for our third approach, what I'd like you to do is visualize in your mind someone that you admire, someone that you feel good about, a friend or a figure, uh, a mentor, someone who you have positive regard towards, and just see if you can imagine them feeling their face and their body language expressing joy or happiness or a sense of being rewarded. And as you hold that image in your mind, see if you can develop an empathetic joy for them, for their happiness, their skillful happiness. So again, find a figure, a person you admire, Visualize them happy, feeling comfortable, at ease, rewarded for their efforts, and then try to develop empathetically that same feeling. Now, spread that practice to another figure, someone maybe that you know you have positive feelings about, a friend, and practice again visualizing them happy, and then see if you can cultivate a sense of feeling good about their joy, their well-being.
And now spread that happiness to someone that we don't, or that empathetic sense of willingness to share or experience or feel good about the joy of another. Practice with someone you don't know, someone you see, but you don't have any positive or negative feelings about them. And lastly, bring to mind someone that maybe at some point has activated envy or uh, any form of sense that they're <clears throat> uh, we're not deserving of happiness. And again, we're not rewarding them for unskillfully earned happiness, but we're still opening to the possibility that some of their happiness, their well-being, a connection with them rather than constant competition. And again, we don't have to succeed. It's just the practice of trying to share some sense of sympathetic joy with even others we find difficult.
And that's where we'll leave it. Some different strategies for addressing envy in a meditation practice. So whenever you're uh, taking your time, whenever you're ready, slowly opening your eyes, bringing your awareness back to however you've been connecting.